So block three, as we've been uh, kind of going through, we've been setting the stage for this class. I want to say, though, as a word of warning to both our pod rishoners and our actual rishoners, or rishoners, that uh, tonight's class, when I sent it out to MJ, she's my editor and chief uh, that helps me go through my material and see, like, hey, this is too much, or hey, you can go deeper. Um, she sent it back and said, great stuff. It's a college lecture, though, not a Bible class. So uh, it's, it's a little intensive. Uh, there's a lot of things that will be thrown at you tonight. Um, I would encourage you greatly to try to tonight stay with the flow. If at any point you're, you're like going past the rapids and you pass something that we're talking about and it didn't resonate, don't worry. The notes are in front of you. You can go back and visit that later. Just kind of put a star next to it and keep going. Um, I had a professor in college who just called that riding the lazy river. Um, and it was just, just ride the lazy river. Go with the flow and current of the class. And if at any point you feel like, whew, don't worry, that'll happen to all of us at some point, pop back through, keep it going. Um, let's quickly do a touch-on review of where we were last week. Last block, we explored the idea of what it meant that the Bible was inspired. Following the warnings that we established in the first week by the three idols of scripture, of theology, and of our own rightness, we attempted to allow the Bible to speak exclusively on its own without us trying to talk for it. Because as Eve learned, when you talk on behalf of God, Satan always wins. What we discovered is that the Bible is inspired, or more specifically, God-breathed. And it represents exactly how God always wants to do everything he does. God always prefers to do things in relationship. God can do things better, infinitely better than any of us ever could, and yet he continually gives us responsibilities. The example we used last week was that of me and the boys doing an outdoor work project. I can rake ten times faster if Daniel just puts the rake down. He makes it infinitely worse every time. Yet, I love being with Daniel, so what do I consistently do? I consistently hand him the rake, knowing that his fingerprints are going to be all over the project. Good, bad, or indifferent. The yard will not look as good as I would have done it. But you know, it was our yard, and I wanted it that way. Everything God does represents that. From creation to the Exodus, to the law, we followed it all the way through, and including the way the Bible was written. God giving inspired words to the, to the writers and the writers writing them as best as they could to capture the meaning. But as we also discussed last week, there are fingerprints all over the Bible of the writers themselves. What this ultimately pointed to was that that's okay, as we'll talk more about tonight. In fact, I went so far as to argue a point that I will hopefully be able to see. I'm already sounding like a college professor. <laughs> hopefully, by the end of this, I'll prove my thesis. But my thought is, is that at the end of this, we can all see the same thing. That the inaccuracies, inconsistencies, or contradictions that we find in Scripture do not detract from the perfection of God or his word, but actually add to the beauty of them. Because as with all things, God uses frail, broken, weak people 
And that means sometimes the work's going to look frail, broken, or weak. But ultimately, it leads us to the same place as the story of the Bible does, the cross, where we find all of our answers of who God is and what he wants through us. So that's where we've been, and here's where we're going. What is the point of Scripture? What is the point of Scripture? Tonight we're going to be answering that question, specifically focusing on trying to avoid the pitfalls that will lay before us if we try to make the Bible something it's not. Try to make the Bible something it's not. When I was in college, I had a roommate. His name was Parker. He had a thing called a shoehorn. You guys know what a shoehorn is? I'm sure, I'm sure I'm the only person in the room who didn't know what that was. You stick them inside of a shoe, and it keeps, I guess, the shape of the shoe. I had no earthly idea what this thing was that he had underneath his bed. One time he left it out, and I saw it, and I could not figure it out at all. What I did learn, however, was that there is a little, we had locked chest drawers, and there was a little spot in the back that if, I guess, if it ever, like, I don't know what the point of it was, but there was a little trigger thing that you could, like, push in, and the drawer would open in case it ever got stuck or locked or whatever. So me, using my common sense brain, I saw this weird shape and a handle. I saw the back of the chest of drawers with that weird shape, and I thought, this is a key. Weirdest key I've ever seen, but it's a key nonetheless. And so I used this stinking shoehorn to open up this cabinet every time I needed anything until finally my roommate saw. Kind of looked at me, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, you know, the key. Was it effective? Yes. Did it serve some purpose? Yes. Was it the purpose it was designed for? No. And eventually by constantly using the shoehorn as a cabinet opener, the shoehorn lost its value as a shoehorn. In so many ways, that's us in the Bible. We try to make the Bible something it's not. We use it in ways it wasn't designed to be used. And does it find some value? Yes, that's why we keep doing it. But every time we use the Bible in a way it's not supposed to be used, we're stopping it from being used the way it was supposed to be used. Does that make sense? We make the Bible the shoehorn to open cabinets instead of do whatever shoehorns do. Horn the shoes or whatever. So tonight we're going to uh, continue our examination this idea of perfection. What does it mean that the Bible is perfect? To answer this question, I would like us to start by understanding the Old Testament writers' views of perfection. Because what we're going to find is that newsflash, people that lived 4,000 years ago think very differently than we do today. And sometimes we try to take the Bible and shove it into the 21st century instead of humbly walking back to when it was written, to understand it then, not now. So, in the time of the early Torah, all the way through the first century A.D., the grand majority of the audiences that would approach Scripture were illiterate. They couldn't read on their own. Which means that the entire Bible could only be conveyed in one way, the reading of the law. That is why if you read the Old Testament stories, every time the people migrated to the temple, what was the first thing that happened as soon as they entered the gates? The Bible was read to them. The Bible, its law, and its stories were read. Not only that, but to ensure that people got it, go read a lot of the temple psalms. They weren't songs like we sing today. Some of them were. The typical, you know, hallelujah, praise Jehovah, his name is in the highest. 
But there's also a lot that tell the stories of the Bible through the singing of the songs. Because this was the only way that people could get the most out of the Bible. They couldn't read it for themselves. Someone had to read it for them. So when the authors were sitting to write the Bible, guess what they considered as they were writing the story? They weren't considering the reading audience. Who were they considering? The listening audience. And so a lot of the stories were written as a narrative, a story to be told from the perspective of a narrator. This is also very important because they understood that a narrator always has an agenda. Always. It's just the way it works. There's so many movies that immediately come to mind. Uh, there's one that we watch every year that I think is the weirdest movie of all time. What's the Christmas movie? The one where the narrator's like talking over it? Yeah, that one. Where like the whole point, the narrator's talking over the movie, right? The narrator's perspective is what drives the story forward. So many movies and ideas come to that, but that's what every story was written to be. Someone standing up and reciting the story, understanding that they are speaking for the narrator, the one who wrote the story, with all of their biases and all of their thoughts tied to it. They believe that every story in the Bible had three threads that were tied together. History. They were a historical event. Second, once you get past the history, there's the literature, the poetic, parabolic, figurative elements that make the, the history a story worth listening to. This is a very important concept we'll come back to. And third, a theology or what that story teaches us about God, the messages of God hidden in the story themselves. From here on, we're going to be covering some rather deep things, as I mentioned before. So this is now more than ever more important that if you have a question, raise your hand and ask it. If I say something and you go, that did not click, can we try it again? Or I don't know what that means or whatever, ask it because chances are most people in this room had the same question. Fair? So feel free to, like, interrupt me because sometimes I get going. You guys know this by now. We're in week four. I'm about to get going. I'm just like, I'm warning you ahead of time. Airplane is leaving the airport, and we're about to fly. Okay. So one of the biggest elements of this interpretation of the Bible, this way of viewing the Bible as three threads, was that all three of the threads needed to be valued the same way, and they were to the Jews. The Jews taught explicitly and frequently that the stories of the Bible had each one of these desperate threads, history, literature, and theology, and you couldn't prioritize any of them over the other without losing the effect of the others. If you prioritized literature, you would often sacrifice the history and you would miss the theology. Likewise, in our modern context, what we struggle with, we prioritize the history, and in so doing, we lose the literature, and in so doing, we miss the hidden meanings of the text. If you focus on one of the three threads at the expense of the others, you've missed the point, and you won't be able to get the most out of it. Let me go ahead and address some things before we jump into the midst of this. Something important, but it needs to be said. Around the 18th century, a series of movements began called rationalism. This is the college professor coming out. I am sorry. Rationalism was the idea that we are going to prioritize logic, science, and history over top of the arts. And even today, we do that. If I were to go to most people in most public schools and write an equation on the board, 
and then draw a picture. Which one do you think they would value as more important? Well, clearly the equation. Now, is the equation actually more important in the art? Probably not. But in our society, we have valued one over top of the other. And the idea is equally true in the Bible. The Bible puts a high preference on art, consistently actually. And in the New Testament, as we'll see in block five, the Holy Spirit consistently tells us that he is going to use art and beauty as his number one way of conveying meaning to us. If the Holy Spirit then tells us that he is going to use poetry, art, and beauty to convey the hidden meanings of God, then maybe as modern listeners, we need to be really careful not to skip over the very things God says he's going to use to help us understand him. N.T. Wright, a very famous theologian and a brilliant one at that, once said that art comes before any epiphany. Meaning, art comes before the epiphanies of science or of math. That's true. Creativity and artistry often leads to some of the greatest discoveries in rationalism. The ancient world, however, did not value the same things we value. They did not experience rationalism, so guess what they cared less for? Facts, reasons, equations, numbers, statistics, etc. They believed that history was supposed to be told as a story. The artistry and the message it's trying to convey were just as important as the events that occurred. Whenever tonight I come across something and I say the line, this is figurative, this is allegorical, this is metaphorical, I am by no means devaluing it. I'm just simply putting it in its correct category. I am not saying that this allegory or figurative language is less valuable than the facts. They're just different. The Mona Lisa sitting on its canvas is just as valuable as an, the quadratic equation. They just serve different functions. And in the Bible, let's not miss one for the other. So we're going to break these three down and get rolling. <clears throat> so thread number one, history. History. Oh, one other note I need to make. I'm going to be teaching a lot of this as if I was in the mindset of the Jews. So there are going to be things I say or do that you may be like, whoa. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just simply stating, like, in this first point, most stories were considered historically accurate. However, the Jews believe that Job was a poem and not a historical event. I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I'm just simply stating that's what they've said. So things like that are going to come up. I'm not arguing that point. That's not the point of this class. Just simply trying to keep in congruence with the point of stepping back in time. Okay. Um, no, the message behind them. So they, uh, we'll, we'll get there. That's actually going to be something we're going to come back to. The, the story of, no, 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 you're fine. The story of Job, um, there's going to be a bunch of these that we're going to hit on. And how history and poetry kind of intertwine beautifully. But we'll get there. Most every story they believed was set on a set of historical occurrences. Most every single one in the Bible. The Jews believed that this was very important. This was history, a set of stories or events that occurred. With that being said, when I say history, what you think of is not what they thought of. I love history. I got a minor in history. I was in every history class I could get into, and 
I made my roommate come into every history class that I got into. I literally would wait till he'd go asleep on the night that we had to submit our classes, go into his laptop, this is no joke, and sign him up for all my classes that I was in. The reason I would do that is because he tried to go through the bare minimum. So, like, he needed 12 hours or whatever. I, and he would, like, set 12 hours. They'd all be basic classes and not strain himself. And I was like, bud, no, we're doing this together. And then I, like, I, I forged a signature one time to get him into 22 hours with me. It's so, like I walked into the Bible office. I'm like, hey, Kay, uh, do you have a form? And he's like, yeah. And she handed it to me. I turned around, signed Parker's name, turned back. And I was like, she looks down. She looks at me. And she goes, I, and then we just rolled on. Uh, but. Parker, Parker learned to love history, too. It's funny how that works. Um, Parker, if you're listening to this, buddy, I love you, and I'm so sorry for all the things I put you through. Um, but history is very important, but we have to step back into time and see history the way that it was designed to be read, the way they told it. For instance, if I sit down today with one of my favorite historical books, uh, let's say SPQR by Mary Beard. It's one of my all-time favorite books. It's about the history of the rise of the Roman Empire. Fantastic. There are several things I expect a good history to do and not to do. For instance, first, I expect the piece of history to be free or mostly free of clear biases. If you're writing a history in the modern world, you're supposed to, you're taught to, remove your personal biases and simply stick to telling the facts. Second, we expect the peace to be free of propaganda, meaning not trying to advocate for a particular religious, governmental, political, or social structure. Third, we expect a good history for the facts to be clearly stated with a premium on accuracy. Dates, times, places, names, these are the things that we define as most important. And fourthly, a modern history, if I'm sitting down to read a good history book, I expect that the purpose of the peace is to just articulate what happened. Just educate me on what is occurring. For those of you following along, it's page 32. Those are the four things I expect in a history today. What's fascinating, however, is that all four of these expectations were not only not met in the ancient world, but they, histories were written for the exact opposite purpose. I have a couple of examples written beside the points, and for your own research, I'm going to have a lot more footnotes in this than I've had before, because there's a lot of cool stuff that if you want to dig into, I want to give you resources to, but I don't want to bog the class down by exploring my nerddom. Uh, this is one of those moments. I give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, the four ways that we expect modern history to be understood is the exact opposite of the way they intended to write it. First, every history, every history was written with a clear and remarkable bias. Facts were often even subjective, to accomplishing the bias they were trying to foretell. Most of the time, and if you follow it logically, it makes sense, who ordered histories to be written? Conquering warlords, kings, or religious leaders. You know what they had? Substantial amount of biases that they needed conveyed. So when Julius Caesar wrote his Gallic campaigns, you know what he said? Weird stories of him like standing on top of the bow of a ship with his sword glistening in the sunlight as the barbarians run at the sound of his voice. Yeah, exactly. Like all of these things added that clearly didn't happen, but man, they make a great story and they support the bias. Second, 
Whereas we are to write it free of propaganda, they wrote it for the purpose of propaganda. Most every ancient text was written for the purpose of continuing a political, military, social structure or group. Third, the purposes of history were to convey a story, a message, and to be honest, facts were not nearly as important as the engagement was. There is so many different accounts of major battles, like the Battle of Cannae, for instance, in which the numbers range by hundreds of thousands of difference. Why? Because you know what doesn't sound cool? 1,200 dudes sat over here, 1,300 dudes sat over here, and at the end, like, 110 died, and they went home. What does sound cool is 150,000 lined up against 210,000. And after a day of fighting, the, the ground was red with the blood of the enemy. That just reads better. So often, that's what made it into histories, not necessarily the actual truths. Fourth, the purpose of a history piece in the ancient world was to motivate the people to accomplish certain actions or to serve as identity markers. This is where we came from. This is how awesome we are. Aren't, aren't we awesome? Yeah, we're awesome. Okay, cool. Now fight for us so you can be awesome too. That was the general purpose of histories. Clearly, our modern conception of what a history is supposed to accomplish and what the ancient conception of what history is supposed to accomplish is very different. Very, very different. So, it's important to remember that the Bible was not a 21st century history document. It's not a historical textbook written for today's definitions of history. Now, as we'll talk about, the Bible was very much more accurate than a lot of these other histories, and it did tell us what its intent was and showed us its biases very early on. We'll talk about those in just a moment. Also a reminder, not all bias is bad bias, but we'll talk about that too. Um, we got to be careful that we don't shove the Bible and ancient history into a modern conception of history. This is why we get all tangled up. This is why we get in fights and argue and sometimes get lost on things that don't matter. Because we're trying desperately to defend a Bible that was written for the ancient people in the way that we would try to defend a history textbook today. In so doing, I, I, I'm going to steal a line from one of my favorite authors. Brian Zahn once said that in our haste, in our haste to find the history of the Bible, we abandon God in our wake. We're running as fast as we can to prove the Bible as a history textbook in the modern world, often at the expense of the story it's trying so beautifully to tell. But as I mentioned, the Bible does not leave us on a cliff. It specifically tells us, hey, here's what I am, here's the biases I carry, and here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And it does so from its early onset, and it doesn't hide from that. So we're not left wondering, ooh, what part of the Bible is biased? What part? It is pretty clear. First, we're going to slow down in a second. I'm sorry, guys. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, first, it is biased towards the Hebrew people. Obviously, it is literally the story of the Hebrews and God. So guess who the main characters always are? The Hebrews. And guess who always looks, for the most part, good through the beginning of the story? The Hebrews. And guess who God specially loves more than anyone else? The Hebrews. Now, as we later learn, that's not exactly true. God actually loved everybody the same because God does that. As the sunshine and as the rain falls, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 38. But at the time, they didn't know that. 
So we see the bias slated towards themselves. The story is written to them, for them, and about them. So guess what? Their bias is pretty strong. It carries with it an exceptionalism for their leaders and their heroes. One of the most quoted things about David in the Old Testament, you know what it is? For Saul killed thousands, but David, he killed tens of thousands. Did David actually kill tens of thousands of people? Probably not. That would make him probably the deadliest warrior that's ever lived. But the point still stands. When it says that Saul was by far and away the most handsome in all of Israel and stood a foot above everyone else, was he really 8'4"? Or was he just like a tall, handsome guy? Exceptionalism towards their leaders and heroes was something that was unique to the Bible. Now, one thing that's very unique to the Bible, as we'll talk about in Block 5, is it also pointed out their weaknesses, something that most histories do. David did have an affair. David did make mistakes. And David's bloodthirsty killing of 10,000 is the reason he couldn't build the temple, because there was bloodshed on his hands. For, uh, third, it carries with it superstitions. The Israelites, as most ancient people, had a lot of superstitions that the text reads about. And this is one thing that like, I love to talk about because no one knows this junk, and it cracks me up. Like, okay, there is an entire sub-narrative of the Bible like, we read the creation narrative in Genesis 1. That's what most of us believe. The Jews thought that was good, but then they told the story of God going into the sea dragon Yom, killing him, ripping from him Leviathan, cutting off all of his heads, and from his innards, creating the dry ground. That's a narrative we see all the way through the books of poetry that they sang in the temple. Super weird. Not what I remember reading but they carried with them the superstitions and the stories they understood. Now, did those stories actually happen? Probably not. Do they teach us key things about God? Yes, God's powerful, even over the cosmic dragons that lie in the sea. If you're curious about that, there is a footnote, and I have all the verses listed. That's a fun study. You really want to jump into some weird stuff, jump on into that. The sea dragon Rahab's my favorite, but you, could, you can have your own, I guess. You're entitled to be wrong. Um, so, Fourth, it carries with it its uh, patriarchal tropes of the ancient Near East. One thing that's really crazy, you read about all the stories, they were written to and for and about men. Therefore, most every story, who's the villain? A woman. Even modern stories, like Lot. Lot got drunk, so drunk, that he couldn't even conceive of who he was sleeping with. But who does the story convey as the bad guys? The daughters. Now, were they wrong? Absolutely. Was he wrong? Also, absolutely, but the whole story paints him as the victim. And it goes on. They both get cursed. He lives righteous for God. And I'm going, whoa, wait a second. Last I checked, that's not how that works. And so on and so forth it goes. Consistently, actually. For instance, in the book of Proverbs, when, he, when Solomon, King Solomon, is talking about righteousness, he talks about being the young prince. However, what is the force that always tries to stop the righteous young man? It's the woman. Carries with it the patriarchal bias, man. It really does. And even tells stories filtered through that lens, which is important. And fifth, and we could go on. I'm just going to cut off after a couple. I've already probably gone longer on this than you're interested in, but here we are, and I'm going to finish it out. It also focuses on narration and storytelling, less on concrete objectivism. For instance, the Bible often doesn't care to tell you where it's taking place. A lot of the stories will say things like, between... Beersheba and Tabor. Something happened. Not specifics. They don't ever date anything. Like very seldom do they. They start king reigns. 
And sometimes they'll date prophecies. But the grand majority of the rest of the Bible is not dated. Because they didn't care about that. What they cared about more than anything was telling the story so the people understood the things they needed to about God. So, with all of that being understood, the Bible that you hold in your hands is a history. But not a 21st century history. Not one free of bias. Not one free of lenses. Not one free of human um, inadequacies. Not one free of our, of our weaknesses and the way the Israelites viewed the world. Not free of their superstitions. And not free of a lot of their things. In fact, it's all over it. Because that's what a history was. And that's what a history, when we read the Bible, should be considered as. We'll cover this more in block five. But for now, let me suffice it to say this. The New Testament is a mirror, angled upwards. Where on the bottom half of the mirror we see ourselves, but then we can see the reflection of the heavens coming down. The Old Testament is a mirror facing directly on. And what we're reading in the Old Testament is a reflection of the brokenness of our human state. From the way we view God, to the mistakes that we made, and even the way we glorify the things later Jesus would condemn. We find ourselves staring at ourselves with all of our bias and prejudice, with all of our hate and weakness. And therein lies the secret beauty of the history of the Bible, right? Because God saw all of that mess and chose to use that as his book to teach us the truth of Christ. Our broken pen was perfected by his redeeming beauty, as it is with all things. <sighs> Today we... Uh, often devalue the Bible or feel like the inaccuracies, as we'll talk about in the next couple of blocks, the contradictions of numbers or places or dates or times or how there was 350,000 in this story, but that same story told later only had 176,000. And what does that mean? And why in this story is this guy commanding this army, but in the same story, that guy's commanding this army? I don't understand. There's so many of this. All of that stuff didn't matter to them. Because that wasn't the point of the history. The point of the history was to tell the story of what happened. To us, we look at those contradictions and failures and we say, the Bible then must be a bad book, and it is a horrific one if we're holding it to the standard of a 21st century history textbook. But if we're looking at it as God's divinely inspired word, it's perfect. Because it reveals exactly what it says it's going to reveal. By allowing us to see the Bible the way it's supposed to be read, by stepping into the feet of the people who wrote it, and by listening to it like we were listening to it from Ezra, will help us so much as we try to understand the Bible more. Focusing less on the small details that frankly don't matter. Focusing more on the stories that it's trying to tell. And ultimately the God that it's pointing us to. All right. Pausing. Pausing. Anything? Questions? Yes, in fact, what we're going to get into next is the literature. Dave, you're an eye's brain, man. It's like every time. This happened last, the first week he comes up and goes, I think you should really talk about, and I literally wanted to like open my binder and be like, we're kind of on it. But yes, I would say that the, the way that the history was written was with a poetic license given. Um, in fact, one thing that's crazy, prophecies, for instance. How were all of those told? Usually in songs or poems. 
and also usually not very clear, which, by the way, kind of defeats what we define as prophecy, which, again, we'll talk about, because that's not what they viewed as prophecy. What we view as prophecy is foretelling the future. And if that was some of the prophet's intentions, boy, howdy, did they make it hard to do. Because I'm like sitting here like, okay, but there's four diamonds on this dragon's head and seven diadems, but there was only six in the last one. Is that the imperfection of man? It's the fall of Rome. And I'm sitting there like, I have no idea, guys. This is so, now who knows? But we'll talk about that as we get forward. What we do know is this. God consistently gave all the writers of the Bible poetic license. In fact, encouraged it. Because again, who was listening to the words? Illiterate people. They were just just trying to hear the story. Which also, as an aside, it's not wrong to try to explore prophecies and try to figure out what the numbers means and all that. That's a fun study to do. At the end of the day, it does not define your salvation. And to those Jews sitting there at the feet of Ezra as he's reading some of the scrolls of prophecy, they're just like, whoa, did you hear that angel? There's four heads, six swords, but only five hands. It means one hand has two swords. And like, they're like talking amongst themselves about that stuff, not necessarily what all of those forms of prophecy mean. Because to them, they just wanted to get to the truth of who God was. By the way, sometimes I think we need to simplify our approach sometimes. Go deep. Obviously, I love to. But always come back to the surface. Just remember that this story is an incredible story of God's love and power. Guys, it's hot. I feel like I burned so many calories teaching this class. Okay. Let's jump into thread two. Literature. <clears throat> the writers needed to use poetry and beauty to make the stories readable, understandable, listenable, I guess I should say. And we see that uh, through crucial stories, the narrators will often dabble in a variety of things to make the story more understandable. I use a lot of, um, like, metaphors, stories, relatable context, like the shoehorn, right? Because why? Because trying to explain some difficult concepts is often made simple by relatable stories. Jesus actually taught me that one. He was pretty good at that. Uh, and I think the Old Testament writers utilized that as well. They had a variety of ways that they attempted to convey beautiful, deep meanings and stories in poetically stunning ways. If you are following along, page 35, thread 2, sub point 1. Um, we have a variety of things I have listed here. We're not going to talk about all of them because these are just some fun ones that I found that like, hey, kind of prove the point. The, even the parts of the history were written in poetry. We see a lot of different types. For instance, acrostics. Bishop. Boy is slothful. Help. What? Of. I don't know. The point is, is if you take, like, the, a name or a thing, and then you, like, first letter of each, or first letter becomes the word, acrostic, I hope. Help. Does you guys follow that? I, I really hope so, because I do not know how to explain acrostics. Yes, yeah, so you have, like, the list of letters, and then the first line starts with that letter. Uh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic through the Hebrew, um, through the entirety of the Hebrew alphabet. But then also a variety of other stories. Um, there's like seven or eight psalms that all do it. 
Proverbs does it. The entire book of Lamentations is written in acrostic. And what's even cooler is four of the prophecies of Daniel are written in acrostic. That I find really fascinating. Two stories in the book of Kings is an acrostic. Ironically, often the stories that have a lot of boring details. Like, for instance, the creation of the temple has some acrostic in it. Why? Because you can only hear about how, like, then make a gold spoon, and then another gold spoon, and, believe it or not, a third identical gold spoon before you're like, I'm tuning out, help. And so they did. So they added some acrostics and some poetry to make it a little more exciting to read. Also, the use of pseudonyms. There's a lot of names in the Bible, a lot of names in the Bible. So writers would often use pseudonyms for some of the minor characters, not the key characters, but the minor characters, to help us remember what that is. A pseudonym is a false name or title given to someone. The one that immediately comes to mind, the Jews often talk about the story of Samson and Delilah. Was Delilah her actual name? Probably not. Why? Because Samson means strength as the sun. So, he met Delilah, ironically, in a place called the Land of Darkness. And what was her, what was her name mean? The one who makes feeble. And then what did she do? She made feeble the strong one. That was like the whole point of the story. So they would use little word things like that to help people follow along with the story. Because those genealogies are hard to get through. And if you just listen to a genealogy, and then you're listening to some dude falling in love with some girl, how do I remember which girl this is and why that matters? So they would often come back through with minor characters and add pseudonyms. Things that would help you follow along with the story more. Again, an example of how, is that actually her name? Is that fact correct? No. No, it wasn't. Does that matter to the story? Of course not. That's actually why the story was written that way. Again, getting us to step outside of our 21st century lens and back into the ancient text. Um... Another famous form of poetry is a chiasm. This is my favorite because the entire Bible is one. I find that so fascinating. I charted it out one time when I was in college. I looked like a psychopath. Parker comes in. Man, Parker's getting a lot of screen time tonight. Uh, Parker comes in. I have four poster boards taped to my wall, and I have strings running. I'm like red Sharpies, and I'm pretty sure you wanted to call SWAT because I would have. Um, and, and I was charting out this whole chiasm. Chiasm is when something starts and ends the same way, and it mirrors itself every step of the way. We'll get to an example, because that makes it easier. But a simple example is this. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God says to Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Starts and ends the same way. But entire narratives are told this way. For instance... Let's consider the antediluvian cycle, which is a fancy way of saying everything that happened before the flood. It goes like this. Genesis chapter 1, creation. Mankind was given the charge. On bottom page 35, this, this is like the chart. Mankind given the charge. What happened? Mankind fell. And then mankind was severed from God. And then violence was introduced to the world. But then what happens? It like works its way back out. Mankind was severed from God. Genesis chapter 6, my spirit will not stay with them for more than 100 years. The fall of mankind for every inclination of the man's heart was wicked, and God knew he needed to act. Followed by recreation as he looks at Noah and gives the exact same commands he gave to Adam. That is nine chapters of a chiasm. Intentionally designed to help people follow the story. Because this is how all Hebrews told stories. The entire history and origin story of the Jews was put in a poetic 
way to help them follow the story. They went out of their way to continue this pattern. Specifically this one. Out of all the other ones, this is the one they did the most of. And I, I give a couple of cycles. Abraham's cycle, you can do the same thing with. Jacob's story, Joseph's story, the Exodus. Then you can go from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of the Exodus story, and it's all one chiasm. And then you can go from the Exodus to the Torah and the creation of the Torah, which then you can also tie back to Genesis chapter 1. And on and on and on it goes. And I'm getting way too excited and judging by your faces, you're not. Anyway, it's cool, guys. It's really cool. Just, just trust me on it, I promise. Um, you can feel that psychopath coming back out. Where's the poster boards when you need them? Okay, last one we'll talk about is amirism. This is a literary technique used to put two polar opposites together to bring something into fullness. An example, Psalm chapter 1 verse 2. He finds satisfaction in obeying the Lord's decrees. He thinks on his laws day and night. Amirism is day and night. When you put those together, you have a whole day. Right? Two things that, like, encompass everything. There's a lot of them that use, like, light and darkness. For in the light, God is there, but in the darkness, he roams. What is he saying? God's everywhere. That's the point, right? But just like the other examples, entire stories were designed to fit into this poetic structure to help it be relatable. Which also means, by the way, like with acrostics, I don't know if you've ever, I just tried to make an acrostic and it ended on the word of, because clearly I'm not good at them. But the point of an acrostic, you have to be aware that you have to kind of maybe fudge around a little bit to find a word that'll fit, right? Well, now imagine you're doing an entire story in acrostic. Those are some big details that you have to kind of fit into the structure. Same with the mirrorism here. The biggest example of a whole story that is a mirrorism is creation in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 begins with one of the most famous lines. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth, that's a mirrorism. He created everything, the whole kit and caboodle. But also there's a little hidden one we're not going to get into because that's nerdy. But there's like little hidden Easter eggs all the way through it. Okay, I'm going to get into it because I'm a nerd. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 has a non-translatable particle. Two random letters, the first and last Hebrew letter put side by side right after that. Serves no translational purpose. The only other time we see that is in Revelation when there are two letters put together that are non-translatable, an alpha and omega, first and beginning, first and end of the Greek uh, alphabet. Beginning with the beginning and the end, ending with the beginning and the end. That's pretty cool. Completely not relevant to our lesson tonight, though. So the creation narrative ends with the epochs of each day, evening and morning, evening and morning. What are those? Those are mirrorisms. There was the beginning and there was the end. And eventually it ends with the whole story being brought back. Genesis chapter 1, 1 begins with the word beginning and ends in 2, 1 with the word end. Amirism. Completion. Every day God does everything he needs to. Yeah, 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 it was. And it was actually, doesn't work if you try to read it in English. Like, and I have it before you here. But you have to read it right to left. It's kind of lame, but there it is. So I, I did that one time. I was teaching a teen class, and they looked it up on their phone. And they're like, that's not right. And I'm like, backwards. I read it backwards. But anyway, beginning and end, the story of creation. God created everything every day. 
The point I'm trying to get to with all this is, first of all, the Bible is highly, highly filled with poetry. It is literally often poetic in structure, trying to accomplish poetic means, and doing it in poetic ways, because that's what it's trying to do. But one thing I think is most important is this. The entire purpose of God's divine story is not to be a 21st century historical textbook or a 21st century scientific textbook. It's not designed to answer all of our questions on marriage and parenting. It's not designed to answer all of the histories and make sure it gets all the dates right or places right or numbers right. Because if you're trying to, it will fail you. But the reality is, that doesn't matter. Because the Bible's a story. God's divinely inspired story. And it's perfect, mind you. It's perfect for the purpose it let, it's set out for. It's perfect because it tries to teach us one very simple thing. God is, and was, and will be. From beginning to end. The powerful Yahweh. The compassionate Jesus. That's the story. By allowing the Bible to accomplish telling its history the way it's trying to tell the history, not the way we want it to tell the history. If we free the Bible from our 21st century complexion and we allow the Bible to speak on its own two feet, what we'll find is a stunning narrative that will bring you to tears and its poetry and beauty. Let's not miss the story of the Bible by fighting over details. I once had to break up a fight between two Bible majors as they were arguing which rendition of the David census story was the most accurate. And I'm going, why does this matter? They got the numbers off. Okay. Different names are used sometimes. Okay. Does that really detract you from finding out who God is through the story? Probably not. I often had a professor, I had a professor often say, you spent as much time straining the gnat which is just a way of saying arguing over dumb things, as you did trying to live out the Great Commission, how much better would the church in America be if we stopped trying to fight over every small detail and freed ourselves to let the beautiful story of the Bible run through us to the world around us? Next week, we'll pick up with theology, run through that real quick, and then, just to finish off the college motif, I guess, we will be having a lab in which we will set up creation, and we will deconstruct it a little bit through the poetic lens. We'll interpret it the way the Jews interpret it, then we'll interpret it the way that modern Christians interpret it, and then we'll discover that the same theological truth comes out of creation regardless of which view of it you take. And how ultimately the whole point of each story in the Bible is to get us to the cross of Calvary. And how every story can, if we allow it, to not fight over dumb details. Let's uh, conclude out with our prayer of the evening. Page 7, if you're in the big guide. If you're not, it's on the top of your sheet. I believe this is the Benedict, right one? This is Benedict, as we see it? Okay. Almighty God, give us wisdom to perceive you, intellect to understand you, diligence to seek you, patience to wait for you, eyes to behold you, a heart to meditate upon you, a life to proclaim you, through the power of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you next week, hopefully with less Professor Bishop and more Bible class teaching Bishop. For all of you who are listening along with, the, uh, with us from your homes, 
Uh, I know a couple of small groups have already reached out to us. If you want to email us for more notes or discussion guides, mcocvirtual at gmail.com is the way to get a hold of us. Thank you guys, and have a good night.